Welcome to this podcast on Zimbabwe by ICH, the Institute for Continuing History. The Institute is a professional research body that investigates acts of state-sponsored or communal violence, which continue to have a major impact on the lives of individuals and nations. This series, The Taste of Poison, Apartheid's Black Ops in Zimbabwe, examines the acts of espionage, assassination, sabotage and subversion conducted by South Africa within the borders of its newly independent northern neighbour during the 1980s. It also looks at the men who pulled the triggers and planted the bombs, as well as the impact of their actions in what was a turbulent and sometimes devastating period for Zimbabwe and the region. For those who are unfamiliar with the places, parties and politicians mentioned in this episode, please see the ICH website, continuinghistory.org, for a primer on 1980s Zimbabwe. In this series, we look in some detail at the sharp end of apartheid South Africa's special operations in Zimbabwe. But it's also necessary to understand the ideas and the historical context that informed them. Southern Africa was neither a vacuum nor what it is today. We cannot comprehend it by imposing on it our own preconceptions. So what was the South African government's first reaction when Robert Mugabe took power? Why did it adopt an aggressive posture? And what were some of the early operations that set the tone for what became a highly charged and yet at times surprisingly pragmatic relationship? You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Doran. The website of the Institute for Continuing History is continuinghistory.org. The key driver of South Africa's policy towards Zimbabwe in the first half of the 1980s was a sense of siege that intensified in Pretoria following the victory of Mugabe's ZANU-PF in the first all-party elections of February 1980. Only five years before, three of South Africa's four northern neighbours were controlled by white colonial regimes. By 1980, all were in the hands of black governments who supported the international campaign to end apartheid. Pretoria's apprehensions were compounded by the fact that Mugabe and his party were officially Marxist and that they hadn't been expected to win a majority of seats. South African officials had predicted that Mugabe would be prevented from taking power by a coalition between the whites and ZANU-PF's two main rivals. But those rivals, Joshua Nkomo Zapu and Bishop Abel Muzarewa's UANC, were thoroughly trounced in the election. Muzarewa, South Africa's great hope, was expected to get over 30 of the 80 black seats. In the event, he secured only three. ZANU 157. Reflecting the shockwave that passed through South African corridors, the regime's embassy in Washington lamented what it described as, quote, 
a failure of intelligence at least equivalent to that suffered by the USA in Iran, unquote. A reference to America's failure to predict the Islamic Revolution and the fall of the pro-Western Shah of Iran during 1979. Continuing its telex to headquarters, the embassy remarked that it was, quote, cold comfort that most others in the West were also wide of the mark. None of the Western intelligence services has maintained a significant presence in Rhodesia for many years. The South African Foreign Service and intelligence services have, on the other hand, had uninterrupted access to Rhodesia itself throughout the period since 1965, unquote. The South African government of P.W. Borta feared that Mugabe's rise to power was part of what it described as a total onslaught by international communism against capitalist South Africa. This interpretation of events was, in effect, a version of the so-called domino theory that had instructed US foreign policy in Southeast Asia. The belief was that the Soviet Union and its allies sought to trigger a chain reaction in which one country, then the next, would fall under Marxist control. Initially, at a top-secret meeting with his colleagues, P.W. Borta felt that South Africa should deal with what he called the dangerous Zimbabwe situation by adopting a wait-and-see attitude. His foreign minister, R.F. Borta, expressed the general sentiment in the room. It was, he said, quote, uncertain how Mr. Mugabe will act in practice. Basically, there are two views. A, that all he is doing now is acting, and that as soon as his position is consolidated and his army organized, he will show his true colors within a year. And B, that he had previously made Marxist noises, but only to get support from that side, and that now he is being given a chance to fulfill his new promises. Rhodesian industrialists, farmers, and even former Rhodesian Prime Minister Mr Ian Smith believes that perhaps there is something good that can be born. Which view is correct? Only time will tell. Unquote. The uncertainty about how Mugabe and Zimbabwe would turn out was to remain, but by June 1980, two months after Zimbabwean independence, a decision had been made to get on the front foot and to keep Mugabe on the back foot. At a further top-secret meeting, it was concluded that, quote, South African aid which contributes to the stabilisation of Zimbabwe, must be gradually reduced, and that, in general, more pressure must be exerted on Zimbabwe and Mugabe. Screws need to be tightened. Unquote. In essence, therefore, the response was to adopt an offensive rather than defensive attitude to the threat. General Chris Tyrion, a key player on regional operations during the 1980s, later described 
South Africa's emerging strategy on Zimbabwe and its other neighbours as a preemptive one, designed to ensure that the conflict with liberation movements occurred north of South Africa's borders. He recalled that, quote, the philosophy then became strong to say, we are not going to fight on our home soil, we take the war to the enemy, unquote. The primary concern in this context was to prevent Mkontowe Sizwe, the armed wing of the African National Congress, from using Zimbabwe and other regional countries as a base from which to attack South Africa. Only a few days after Mugabe had taken office, P.W. Borta sent him a personal message, warning him that South Africa had information that, quote, there are ANC terrorists in Rhodesia and that if they cross the RSA border, they will be eliminated and South African troops will enter Rhodesia to clear them out, unquote. Apart from a determination to take direct action against ANC targets, South Africa's main objective was to create division and instability, as Tyrion explained, quote, When Rhodesia became Zimbabwe, the rationale was to exploit every situation, to drive a wedge between Zapu and Zanu. We just wanted a destabilised situation where they were so busy with each other that the idea would be, let's sort our own problems out first before we start supporting Mkontowe Sizwe, before we give full-out support to the ANC. Unquote. You are listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Durham. The Institute's core work is cutting-edge original research on some of the world's best-concealed acts of mass violence. And we also track recent scholarship and debate on major episodes of violence that aren't covered by our own research programs. High-quality educational outputs and groundbreaking investigations take time and require significant expertise and resources. So if you'd like to make a donation to our work, please visit continuinghistory.org. The main assumptions and strategies of South Africa's regional policy in the 1980s were then relatively simple, indeed simplistic. International communism was on the march, the fight had to be fought beyond South Africa's borders, and the best way of doing that was to hit specific military targets as well as to manufacture instability in neighbouring countries. Yet, at a tactical level, the application of these principles proved anything but straightforward, in part because the principles themselves were insufficiently complex to match the complicated reality. Experimentation, and often confusion, ruled the day. The South Africans were always busy, but their actions were frequently unstructured and subject to constant changes of direction. Accounts of South African subversion, particularly by opponents of apartheid, often portrayed Borta's regime as the invisible presence behind all things nefarious in the region. But the reality was less grand and much less coherent.
As far as Zimbabwe was concerned, this disjointed dynamism meant that South African policy mutated through various, sometimes contradictory phases, before finally settling into a more or less stable pattern by the mid-1980s. The policy of destabilisation directed at Zimbabwe was steered by the South African Defence Force, or SADF, and codenamed Operation Drama. The different operations conducted beneath that umbrella were generally divided between two different arms of the SADF, controlled by the Chief of Staff Intelligence, the CSI, to whom General Tyrion was deputy, and by the General Officer Commanding Special Forces. Those branches of the SADF received their instructions from the State Security Council, the SSC, a cabinet committee consisting of the Prime Minister, the Ministers of Defence, Foreign Affairs, Justice and Law and Order, plus the Chief of the SADF, the Commissioner of Police and other senior civil servants, including the Director General of National Intelligence. Although it was originally established as an advisory body, in practice the SSC operated as an all-powerful executive on matters relating to national security, overriding the traditional authority of Cabinet in that regard. Those on the SSC and its secretariat were, as a rule, the only members of government who had a broad view of all the special operations in planning or progress, though such knowledge did not necessarily extend to the fine details. Below the SSC, the respective activities of CSI and Special Forces were tightly compartmentalised on a need-to-know basis, meaning that, even at senior levels, the left hand was typically unaware of what the right hand was doing. Different operations therefore ran simultaneously, implemented by operatives who were ignorant or only partially aware of activities outside their immediate area of responsibility, a situation that generated considerable complexity and at times uncoordinated and conflicting covert action. Following Zimbabwe's independence in April 1980, there was around 18 months of relative calm in South Africa's relations with the Mugabe government. Yet behind the scenes, the SADF was busy creating new structures that would execute cross-border operations in Zimbabwe. A fundamental part of those preparations was the recruitment of former members of the Rhodesian military and intelligence machine, a process that had begun in earnest during the ceasefire that ended the Rhodesian Civil War in December 1979. Such recruitment accelerated in the six weeks between the elections of late February 1980 and Independence Day. The sizeable number of white and black personnel who went down south to join the SADF included members of police special branch, military intelligence and specialist units such as the Salu Scouts and SAS. Others were recruited as South African agents and remained in position as members of the Zimbabwe security services, or floated around within the country's private sector. The motives of the new recruits varied. Some, including black members of the Rhodesian security forces, 
fled to South Africa, fearing persecution at the hands of their former enemies. Others did it for money, but perhaps the majority who threw their lot in with the South Africans did so because they were, in essence, ideologically and psychologically undemobilized. Many regarded life under a black nationalist government as anathema, particularly one that was ostensibly Marxist. Yet, equally, such men were entirely unprepared for a return to ordinary civilian life. They had been knee-deep in a no-holds-barred counterinsurgency war, only for it to be brought to an end abruptly and unexpectedly at a negotiating table in London, thousands of kilometres from the combat zone. They were daily experiencing the fear and rush of life on the edge, and on the next day they were told to pack up, go home, and find something else to do. Thus, although many justified their decision to become South African operatives in terms of moral principle, the core of the matter was often psychological, not ethical or intellectual. One of the key South African recruits was Neil Creel, an army officer who had been in charge of the Salu Scouts reconnaissance troop and who had been appointed head of a new SADF unit called Project Barnacle. Run by special forces and based outside Johannesburg near Hartebeersport Dam, Project Barnacle was given a job description that included the collection of intelligence along with, quote, ambushes against strategic personnel, eliminations, and the conducting of super-sensitive operations as instructed, unquote. Creel was supported by a posse of ex-Rhodesians, including Gray Branfield, a former member of Special Branch, who was put in charge of urban operations in Zimbabwe. Project Barnacle's first major target was the ANC's chief representative in Zimbabwe, Joe Garby. The order for Barnacle to take charge of this operation came after CSI had botched an attempt to blow up Garby in his driveway in February 1981, using a bomb of the same design that had killed ZANU's Herbert Chitepo in Lusaka in the mid-1970s. One of Garby's companions had noticed wires protruding from a pile of leaves under his friend's car and had called police. They found a device that was attached to the front wheel, primed to detonate 7 kilograms of TNT once the vehicle began to reverse. Mugabe had issued strict instructions that the ANC was not to use Zimbabwe as a base for military operations, so as to give the South Africans no reason to attack, and there is no evidence that Garby attempted to circumvent that policy. The South Africans were well aware of such facts because they were fed a continuous stream of intelligence by their agents in Zimbabwe's central intelligence organisation, the CIO, and other arms of government. For example, only three weeks before Garby was targeted for a second time, South Africa's National Intelligence Service acquired guidelines that had been issued 
to Zimbabwe's civil service on how to handle ANC activities in the country. These were, in effect, a restatement of established policy and advised public servants that, quote, political and moral support will be channelled via the OAU, while the ANC will not be allowed to use Zimbabwean territory for any form of military activity and no authorization exists for the establishment of anything that can be regarded as a base. If any ANC presence is discovered, the police and army must be called in. Unquote. Moreover, quote, the presence of Joe Garby in Salisbury must not be interpreted as if the ANC had an office there. He is firstly regarded as a handy contact and is secondly instrumental in solving problems arising regarding refugees, unquote. Those in turn, quote, who claimed ANC refugee status would be moved to Chikarubi Prison and questioned by the intelligence services. If the latter is satisfied with their bona fides, refugees will be handed over to the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, unquote. But the State Security Council was nonetheless determined to persist with the effort to kill Garbi. Ironically, it was the Mugabe government's constant surveillance of ANC representatives that provided the kind of precise intelligence which enabled the South Africans to target Garby and others. The movements of ANC personnel were tracked and recorded in fine detail by the CIO, and South African moles within CIO promptly photocopied and sent the reports to Pretoria. Sometimes they simply stole the originals and passed them on. At Project Barnacle, the most important recipient of such Zimbabwean intelligence was Peter Stanton, who, in Rhodesian days, had been a special branch officer on what was called the terrorist desk. He had later resigned from SB and joined the Salu Scouts. Stanton had been regarded as one of the foremost Rhodesian experts on ZANU's military wing, ZANLA, and was known as a skilled interrogator who, unlike most of his colleagues, did not find it necessary to use physical force in order to extract information. Stanton was appointed the head of operational intelligence for Project Barnacle and worked closely with Creel, Branfield and others on many black ops, both regionally and within South Africa itself. Like many of his fellow travellers, who were willing to talk about their war experiences but never spoke publicly about their activities after 1980, he has taken many of his secrets to the grave. Branfield was one of the few who did speak about his work with Project Barnacle, albeit under a pseudonym. On the Garby operation, he recalled that the intelligence function was shared between Barnacle and CSI, despite CSI's bungling of the earlier attempt to eliminate the ANC representative. A group of CSI officers travelled to Zimbabwe in July 1981, where they liaised with sources in CIO who had, conveniently, 
been tasked by the Zimbabweans to monitor Gabi's movements. Gabi was understandably skittish after the attempt on his life five months earlier. He moved about constantly, kept company with groups of people, and never slept at home. Branfield and two black operators who made up the assassination team got close to him on a number of occasions, but were unable to act because they were under firm instructions to take out the target when he was alone. After stalking Garby for 10 days, they eventually cornered him as he was reversing out of the same garage where CSI's bomb had earlier been attached to his vehicle. He had changed his habits, but they were not random enough. Branfield smashed the driver's side window of the car, and the three men pumped 19 bullets into Garby's body using Uzi submachine guns and silenced pistols. The assassins left the country in a light aircraft three days later. Garby's killing marked the beginning of an escalation of South African operations in Zimbabwe, but that upward curve was also accompanied by an increase in the tempo of Zimbabwe's counterintelligence operations. Indeed, Mugabe and Zanu may have been rendered more vulnerable by the presence of many ex-Rhodesians within the security services, but it was a group of those ex-Rhodesians, loyal to the new government, who played a critical part in the effort to see off the threat. No one knew the personalities and networks of people like Branfield and Creel, as well as their former colleagues from the recently ended war. In the instances where successful acts of subversion were to be effected, the CIO was, increasingly, only a few steps behind, limiting the space for further operations and puncturing holes in a South African policy of destabilisation that was naive in conception and increasingly haphazard in execution. You have been listening to a podcast from the Institute for Continuing History, written and presented by Dr. Stuart Durham. The next episode in this series on South African black ops deals with the fallout from the Gabi assassination, the intensifying hunt for moles by the Zimbabwean government and South Africa's sabotage of Zimbabwe's main ammunition dump, among other events.